you, you have no idea how good this makes me feel. Lee says I'm <laughs> in charge. Um, so for those of you who don't know me and you're wondering who the weird guy is on that Weems Guy show, I'm Eric Gullhouse. Lee's sick, uh, not doing well. He'll be okay in a couple of days. But he asked me to guest host the podcast, which I think is going to prove to be a major mistake. However, what it does give me a chance to do is talk to Mike Oxner and Mike's um, heavily into the neuro side of things, both vision and inside the brain. He mistakenly asked me to co-author a book with him, which <laughs> is probably why I'm I we had him on as a guest tonight. So again, if you're just just joining, Lee's not doing not feeling well. He's got some got some sick issues, right? So it's the vocal cord. So he asked me to guest host with him, and I have Mike Oxner on. Mike, why don't you introduce yourself? How you doing, Eric? Good, sir. Oh, great to see you. Uh, glad we're not feeling like Lee is. Yes, oh. I've recovered from shots, <laughs> so that's why I'm doing well. Yeah. Uh, so let's see. I'm a neurology-based firearms instructor, and I, that kind of happened by accident. Uh, about a decade ago, uh, like, like a lot of guys that we know, uh, I got way too many hits to the head. Uh, unlike... A lot of people, fortunately, um, I it, it did not go well for me. And I started having a lot of consequences from those head injuries catch up with me. And my eyes didn't track correctly. My balance was off. My hand-eye coordination was off. Uh, a lot of things were, were not going well. I got irritable very easily. I uh, had a lot of uh, pain that I, I found out after the fact was because of all the stuff going on with the concussions. And I got connected with a group of neurology coaches down in Phoenix. And in the, the month or two before, I hadn't been able to do more than one push-up without a considerable amount of pain. And uh, one, of the, one of the trainers, uh, Matt Bush, had me do most balance drills for about 30 minutes and I popped out 20 push-ups without pain and it made absolutely no sense to me whatsoever. Your signal just got a little bit buggered up there for a second. So can you go back oh. to Matt and just repeat that part? Yeah. So I hadn't been able to do more than one push-up without pain for the last month or two. And he had me do 20 or 30 minutes of vision and balance drills. And at the end of that, I was able to do 20 push-ups without pain. And it didn't make any sense whatsoever. And I went home and I realized immediately that I was shooting better, uh, shooting considerably better. And so I started using some of the same drills with shooters and seeing the same results. And that just kind of lit a fire of, of trying to figure out, okay, this should not work. This uh, doing stuff with my eyes, number one, it shouldn't make my shoulder feel better and it shouldn't get me faster and more accurate on target and but it did and so for the the last 10 years i've gone way down the rabbit hole on neurology and how it um, is really the foundation of all physical skill and everything that we're doing with techniques and tactics are built on neurology so it's not an either or it's not like this is this is a new method and the old method doesn't work. It's like, this is how we get everything that we are currently doing and have been doing to work better. So to, to kind of dumb it down for me on my end, we as humans get most of our input visually, right? Mm -hmm. We don't, we don't smell things the way that other critters do, right? We get everything in visually. So working on stuff visually is improving our performance because that's the way we're already wired already correct ish yeah that's that's one of the the big components of it uh vision and balance together are are really kind of the key and that's uh, because of uh, one of the big reasons is because every time we shoot that's a balance challenge it's uh it doesn't seem like much because we're able to recover from it but if you've ever shot full auto and you did it with your feet together and standing straight up and down uh you know how well that goes and uh, it doesn't go well for very long. Not for very long. So you took what Matt gave you, it fixed the push-up issue. How did you realize that it was in, that it had a positive impact to your shooting? 
I, it just, I, I got home and I shot better. Okay. And then over the next two days, three days, I don't remember exactly how many it was. I noticed two things happened. Number one, the pain came back because I stopped doing the drills. And number two, my shooting went back to baseline. Okay. And so I do the drills, pain would go away and I'd shoot better. I wouldn't do the drills, pain would come back and I wouldn't shoot as good. And it didn't take too many cycles to figure that out. So how did you validate it with students? Who, who were your lab rats and what did you do with them? Yeah, I've had several over the years. Uh, there was a training group that I did a lot with in, uh, in North Idaho at the time. Um, one of the guys, Bruce Cartwright, he oh, met Bruce. at the Revolver Roundup. So, um, um, oh, why am I blanking on his name? Uh, John Farnham okay. basically somehow tricked Bruce and I to create a training group for uh, uh, law enforcement instructors up here so that they okay. could do things that they weren't able to do uh, during their training time and get pushed and have a, a safe place where they could screw up in front of other guys and not have it be in front of students who they needed to impress at the time. And so we did that for a few years and it was awesome. And we, we practiced and tried a lot of things uh, basically just, hey, let's see if this works. Let's see if this can, can help us perform better. And then we'd go out and we'd each try it with students. And then we'd come back and talk about it and try stuff on each other. And, and it was a, a great lab. And then um, teaching, just teaching general classes, going around the country teaching classes, I would normally have a segment where I would have people shoot a course of fire either with, um, uh, with live fire or with uh, airsoft in a recoiling platform. And normally what I'd use is uh, uh, T4E or airsoft with a rail-mounted laser so that there'd be some just, recoil. Yeah, I just got one of those Umarex T4Es in for a review. So looking yeah. forward to that. Yeah, they're a good platform. They've got a couple of shortcomings. Uh, I mean, every training platform does. And as long as you identify those shortcomings and train around them and don't think that they don't exist and that those shortcomings aren't going to carry over if you don't figure them out, uh, they're a great tool. Um, so, yeah, one of the, the drill sets, I ended up just writing down and uh, had records from about a, uh, well, no, it was over a thousand uh, shooters. And what I would do is I'd have them shoot the course of fire. I'd have them do three to five minutes of vision drills, and then I'd have them shoot the course of fire again. And I figured out pretty quick that I had to have them be able to shoot the initial course of fire two or three times if they wanted to, so that I wouldn't get just a uh, crappy first run and a good second run that had absolutely nothing to do with the drills in between. And so that helped about 70% of shooters and created a 20% increase in speed and accuracy. Yes. And then um, over the years, I've refined it and figured out different drills that involve breathing and vision that have improved that to, uh, uh, in a lot of cases, about 50% with almost all of the shooters. And that's an unbelievable statement when you think about a high-end shooter who doesn't have 50% that they're able to improve. Uh, so there's, there's two ways that, that this ends up working out. Number one is uh, the majority of people are not high-end shooters who don't have 50% that they can improve. Uh, for the shooters who are high-end shooters, then what I do is I add constraints. It might be a balance constraint. It might be a movement constraint, uh, something to create the possibility that they can get a bigger improvement. But I can give you an example of a, uh, I was helping with an aerial gunnery program and basically engaging threats from a helicopter in different, different situations. And the progression that they used on their training was they'd start out um, prone shooting steel at 50 yards just to make sure guys had their dots on. And everyone who was coming, they had the ability to shoot 
and they should have their dots on, but it was just basically a verification. Uh, then sitting in a chair shooting at, a, uh, at steel at 50 yards, and then sitting on a chair on a platform hanging from a chain uh, with somebody kicking it and shooting a target at 50 yards. And so there was a guy that came through and he was a, um, a Marine sniper, law enforcement marksman, and did great prone, did great on the chair. When he got to the hanging chair, he was down to 20% hits and he was getting frustrated. He couldn't remember the last time he shot that bad, uh, especially at something that close. Right. So he went back and jammed rounds into mag and went back out and everyone else was reloading mags and uh, and he was kicking the post, making himself move back and forth. And I went up to him and I asked him if, if he wanted to try something. He said, I'll try anything. So I said, all right, put your thumb out in front of you, move it to the left and follow it, move it to the right and follow it and come back to the middle. And he said, was it choppy in one direction and smooth in the other? And he said, yeah, how'd you know? It's like, doesn't matter right now, I'll tell you later. But here's what I want you to do. When you're coming onto the target from the smooth side, take the shot. When you're coming onto the target from the choppy side, swing through and come back from the smooth side. And he instantly went to 80% hits. So that was a 375% improvement, 300% improvement in about a minute. And it was just because of vision. And then I taught him how to smooth it out in both directions, doing some simple drills and, um, but that was stuff he could do at home for that training. He was able to just swing through if he was coming from the choppy side and take the shot if he was coming from the smooth side. Excellent. So that kind of leads into the stuff behind you and how I, I got introduced to you. So Mike, you want to talk about the, the three, the three charts or target looking things in the background. I know they're towels, but yeah. You talk about those in your background there. Yeah. So let me get up. So got three different ones. This one's a, uh, a multi-target that is uh, mainly it's designed to be a foldable, stuffable target that you can use for dry fire that stores better than uh, a paper target. And it's wider so you can, um, you can fit more drills on it. Uh, there's a uh, vision aspects to it with these colored dots, the six colored dots with the little dots in the middle and the numbers that allow you to use a um, uh, basically any app that will show random colors, set up the app and whatever shell color shows up is the, the target that you shoot. So it uh, basically what it does is it switches the decision making process of whether to shoot or not uh, from being a beep to being what you see and reacting to what you see. Uh, this one is uh, this is one that just is uh, part of my vision training for firearms instructors training right now. But it uh, there's a couple of aspects to it. One is you can have shooters go through and find the number and shoot the number in order. So you go through and one, two, three, four, five, and the act of searching for a target and then engaging the target, regardless of whether it's with the gun or whether it's with your finger, that uh, engages the, the prefrontal cortex. And so we can do that with shooters at the beginning of training and it will release dopamine. And that, that release dopamine will help us learn faster for the next 30 to 60 minutes. And it will also help us pay attention more. So one of the ways that we use it personally is got a son who uh, takes after his parents and has ADHD. Uh, imagine that. And so we'll have him do these drills and he'll go from not being able to pay attention and doing things to being able to pay attention. And so it's a, it's a really cool tool um, uh, and that definitely has applications for shooting. One of the things I'll do in front of groups is assess somebody's ability, or I'll use this to assess somebody's ability to um, operate the gun automatically. 
okay. and not have to think through the process. And so what I'll do is I'll have them start off, all right, one, two, three, four, five, six, and then I'll say, all right, now what I want you to do is I want you to count backwards from 100 by seven while you're doing that. And so I'll go well, 100, 93, uh, 86, 79. And what you'll see a lot of times is that the performance will drop off. They'll either, um, their ability to run the trigger without disturbing the muzzle will go away completely, or they'll start getting sweaty on their forehead. And you'll see that within three or four numbers. And uh, instead of actually hitting the targets, they'll be all over the place. So then I back them up to counting backwards from 100 by three and they get their confidence back and they start making hits and then eventually work back up to doing seven again. But it's a really good way to assess whether somebody has a basic fundamental, if they're still having to think their way through the process or if they can perform it automatically at a high level without thinking about it at all. And just saying, I want the hole there and the hole appears there. Um, there's a few other things on here have to do with coordination and inhibition. Inhibition is a huge thing for shooting and it's basically not shooting when you shouldn't shoot. So if furtive movement causes me to draw, can I stop the shooting process before I shoot? And the answer is at some point you can't. At some point you can't take it back. The the open loop action is is going to happen. But uh, the more refined our ability is to uh, figure out what it is that we're looking at and make decisions based on it and translate that to physical action, the the later in the process we can take back the the shot. So with that, we've got this set of patterns here where there's shapes on the the left side the middle and the right side and the the first version of this drill is basically going through and either snapping or or clapping your leg on the side of the the symbol so okay. left right both left 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 right right left the next is inhibition where if it's on the left and it's solid you do left. If it's in the middle and uh, outline, you don't do anything. If it's on the left and an outline, you snap with your right hand, but still say left. So that, the way that that goes is left, right, both, left, 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 right, right, left. And as you can see, it's a little bit slower because the act of inhibiting something is a lot of times more challenging than actually doing it. And so that's something that any, anyone watching this can do. Uh, they can print out lines and put shapes either on the right, left, or middle and do them uh, solid or outline and do it on an eight and a half by 11 sheet of paper and do it with dry fire. Uh, start doing it yourself. And then uh, if you like what you see and you like the, the novelty and the challenge, then start using it with students. And the a lot of the stuff that I've done on the, the targets and tools is because I saw a huge gap between what we were doing with, um, with targets that don't change state mm -hmm. and reality-based training. Okay. And th this kind of stuff isn't a substitute for reality-based training and having a, a live uh, person to respond to but it's another step in the process of instead of having the shoot don't shoot decision being based on what we hear uh let's have it be based on what we see so a couple couple things on that and i don't know if you've looked at the work of dr biggs he's a naval special warfare uh doc who's doing the research stuff and he's gotten big into the inhibitory control and when when I read his first study, it kind of looked like that looked like getting on the brake sooner. But in talking with John Hearn, who I think holds the record for appearances on Lee's podcast, um, that he's more about building better brakes. 
So not just like getting on them yep. faster, but actually teaching people how to have better breaks. So it's nice to see a carryover of that or, you know, people working on some, some parallel things along with that. Bringing that yeah, in. it's a, it's a big part of training that I, there's a lot of things that there's no way we can teach them if we don't know they exist. Right. And there's no way for us to expect to know that things exist unless uh, we randomly figure them out uh, or we're taught. Mm -hmm. So it's somehow exposed to the idea. And this was kind of a rabbit hole I went down when I was in grad school, which was wondering why there wasn't good research on use of force stuff. Well, there was, we just weren't seeing it at the street cop level. It wasn't making it down to us because it was stuck inside of academia. Uh, and this was how I ended up getting, at least finding you and getting connected with you, Mike, was your vision for firearms instructors classes that, you, that you're doing. So I took, I think, what was at least the first online. Yes. That, um, and got exposed to this. And you were also talking about some of the, the issues with breathing, some of the drills you've been doing with breathing on folks. Can you talk about those a little bit? Yeah, absolutely. So, and, and this has been phenomenal. The impact of this has been phenomenal and it, it seems too simple to work, but, but it does. So I'm going to move this down. So my, uh, hands don't hit it. Uh, well, let me, let me back up a second. So on breathing, there's, there's several things that we can use breathing for to influence our state. And we can amp up our, our state or we can calm ourselves down. And one of the things that we can do is uh, make our exhale longer than our inhale. And when we do that, uh, it helps calm us down. And the reason for that is every time we breathe in, it activates the sympathetic system. Every time we breathe out, it activates the parasympathetic system. So if we activate the parasympathetic system longer than we activate the sympathetic system, every time we breathe, it, it has a relatively quick impact of calming us down. Uh, if we think about square breathing, we're doing everything equal. Mm -hmm. We're doing uh, four in, hold four, four out, hold four. And basically all we need to do is think about, well, let's make a triangle. Let's make the, the exhale longer than the inhale and that, that will calm us down quicker so uh what i do is a, a combination of things the first part is a double inhale through the nose and so that looks like this or sounds like this uh, and then a 10 second exhale through the mouth and then hold for five to eight seconds with empty lungs and then repeat the cycle and you can stretch that out as far as you want uh, it's really actually very healthy for your limbic system to practice trying to exhale for 20 seconds 30 seconds 40 seconds or even 60 seconds after that double inhale and it's uh it's challenging uh to have that much that much control of your diaphragm but the more control of your diaphragm you have the the calmer you are under stress and that control of the diaphragm is especially important if you're wearing something that constricts your chest and lungs like maybe body armor and uh, if you can if you can get your lungs to expand down more and have control over them uh, it, it's amazing the impact that it makes so we've got that breathing cycle where we we double inhale and that basically fills the lungs fuller than what we normally would with a normal inhale. And then the, the long exhale is going to activate the uh, parasympathetic system. And then holding our lung or holding our breath with empty lungs, what that does is it increases CO2 levels. Mm -hmm. And when we increase CO2 levels, that does two things. Uh, number one, when oxygen levels or when CO2 levels are low, uh, hemoglobin in the blood holds on to oxygen. So theoretically, it's possible for oxygen to get picked up by the blood, travel all around the circulatory system, come back and come back to the lungs. 
because the hemoglobin was holding on to it so tight. If we can increase CO2 levels, now all of a sudden the hemoglobin will let go of the blood or let go of the oxygen. So that means we get more oxygen to our brain, especially our eyes, our organs, and to our muscles. Uh, the other thing that holding our breath does and increasing CO2 is it increases the amount of nitric oxide produced in our sinuses. And nitric oxide is a, it's called a vasodilator. Basically that means it increases the size of capillaries. And we've got a lot of capillaries in our eyes and our brain. And so that can increase the amount of, of blood, of glucose and oxygen that's getting to different parts of our brain that we need to be able to make decisions based on what we see and to act quickly and act accurately. And that was one of the things that was interesting because just when you were talking about the double inhale, I had come up very much under the four square breathing, right? Mm -hmm. Amount. Um, well, I and, think we all have. And had, had <laughs> very good success with that in actual events where not just in the training world, but applying it during events and had some video footage on it. So that, that was one that took me a little bit to wrap my head around. But once I did, it made a lot more sense and been able to try it since then. Um, can I add something on that real quick? Go ahead. Uh, so Melise Belban, who is a uh, researcher with the Huberman Labs at Stanford, she did a study on uh, doing a double inhale and long exhale, not with the hold and not for the, the, uh, the different ratios. But, but it was uh, the study was in a law enforcement training context. And what they found was that the uh, double inhale and long exhale was uh, more effective than square breathing. That was specifically what they tested in the study. Yeah, and that was just, it was a new one to me that, that took me a little bit of time to wrap my head around just because it wasn't something I'd come across before. Yeah. Um, so with that as a background, and, and your your optic, your vision for instructors covers a bunch of other things uh, like the Brock string and, and some ways to activate different stuff in different folks. But what from that led you to or helped you down the path with optics, pistol-mounted optics? Yeah. That was, uh, I didn't really want to do optics. Okay. I, uh, I, I'd played with them on 22s and they were a fun toy. And all I kept hearing was horror stories about how long it took. And that for, uh, for higher end shooters, I, you're only looking at a 10 to 15% increase of over uh, what you can do with irons. I was like, it's just not, not worth it. It's not worth the, the time to put in for that amount of increase in the, that struggle period in between. I don't want to have bad performance during that time. Okay. And so I was like, ah, oh, all right, I got to do it because um, that's the way the market's moving. Mm -hmm. And people are asking me in classes and I don't have good answers for them. So I've got to do this whether I want to or not, and I've got to figure it out. And so I tried to reverse engineer it and figure out, all right, how could I in a perfect world go from shooting my irons today and shooting a red dot tomorrow? And is it possible? So I tried to figure that out and figured out some factors, ended up um, mounting a dot on a Saturday and going a shoot and shooting an IDPA match the next day with the dot and shot well. And it was, um, uh, I wasn't taking full advantage of the dot at that point, but I was able to switch and not be like, Oh crap, where in the heck is this thing? Um, I was, I went a hole there, the dot would show up there. I'd press the trigger. And so it was uh, relatively straightforward, but it was, it was, um, there were five parts to it, to the being able to switch. Uh, the first one is really obvious, uh, consistent grip so that the, the gun showing up the same way in front of your, your face every time. Uh, number two is sensory integration and sensory integration is having the, the eyes working together and the, 
the ears working together correctly and the eyes and the inner ear working correctly. And that sounds crazy, but for a lot of people, their eyes are either converged in front of their looking at in front of what they're looking at or diverge past what they're looking at. And also in a lot of people, uh, one ear will tell them that they're turning constantly and the other ear will tell them that they're going straight ahead. And both of those impact where we present the gun when we want to put a hole somewhere, whether we're putting up the gun here or whether we're putting the gun up here. So sensory integration was a big thing. Uh, stable eye dominance was a big thing because uh, most people think about having just either right or left eye dominance. And there's 11% uh, of the population, you have what's called cyclopean eye dominance, where mm -hmm. the visual cortex combines the images from two, the two eyes and creates a hybrid third image that we try to aim with. And we can present the gun accurately to the target, but when it points back here, we can't verify the sight alignment or the dot alignment with our eyes. So it gets very confusing. So we wanna have eye dominance, not here, but with one of the eyes. And then there's mixed eye dominance, where instead of the sights coming up here, the brain thinks that uh, we should be aiming from here, the, the corner of the eye. So we can stabilize eye dominance, uh, have our senses integrated, uh, have a good grip. And then the, uh, the fourth thing is an automatic presentation. And you can think about that as the, the kinesthetic aiming part of the, the sighted shooting process. So kinesthetic aiming is what allows us to bring the gun up every time between our dominant eye and the target so that we can verify sight alignment and, and make a sighted shot as quickly as possible. So that's the, the fourth part. And then the fifth part, now all four of those, they apply to irons. They're, they're not exclusive to red dots. Uh, the fifth thing is how can we get it so that the same presentation delivers the irons and delivers the dot? And the, the biggest key to that is having the dot mounted as low as possible and having a dot with a, as thin of a base as possible so that the, the same presentation will deliver the dot somewhere in the window and uh, deliver the irons also. Um, so that was the stuff that you found with it. What led you to do in the book? Yeah, it... Okay, so, so introduce the book and talk about it, right? For yeah, those folks who don't sure. know what we're doing. So Eric and Marcus and I wrote a book called Red Dot Mastery. And I love books and love reading. And I love the fact that I can suck up 10 years of knowledge and wisdom and experience in reading a book where I won't, there's no way to, uh, to get that same value transfer in a video or uh, really any other mechanism. So uh, I, I love books and I really like working with people who like to read books. So it's, a, uh, it's good on both, both levels. The other thing that I've found is that it's much, much easier to put out video than it is to put out a book because mm -hmm. the ideas have to be refined to another level before it, it makes sense in book form. So I think you end up with a higher quality product at the end. And every time I've written a book, it's made me a better instructor at what I wrote the book about. So there, there are both selfish reasons and selfless reasons. And uh, this is the, the least expensive way for people to get uh, high quality information that they can apply at their own speed and on their own time. 
something in the learning and the retention process, at least for me, about having the tangible. Yep. Yes, I yes, I need to see it. Yes, I need to be talked through it. But having the ability to go back and put my hands on something that helps me with the process, regardless of what it is, seems to work better for me in the long run. Yeah, not necessarily my primary learning style. It's having that something tangible to go back to refer to, whether it's my notes or something else makes makes the process a whole lot easier. So I guess that's why I appreciate it it in written form. And you're right on having to refine, putting it on paper forces you to refine it in a way that you don't have to if you're just putting it out there verbally. Yeah. Yeah, I found out how bad I talk when I... uh go back through and and listen to uh talks that i've given and try and convert them into written word i'm like ooh. but so when you came to the book um I, and i haven't had the pleasure of meeting marcus i, I missed him at shot uh, but i did catch a bit about his background in, in a recent very short exchange um Lee, John Hearn, and I can joke about being nerds, but I, I will tell you when I start looking at some of the stuff you put out, I realize I'm not a nerd, or at least not a nerd to that level. Um, but you have a, you, you have the neuroscience, the vision science that you bring to it. Um, why did you choose to reach out to the to your co-authors? What, what were you looking for them to bring to the project? Just out of curiosity. Yeah, it's uh, I'm I'm glad you asked that because so. Everybody has strengths and everybody has weaknesses. And uh, one of the, the issues that we have uh, in the industry is people who know that they're weak in an area or that they're blind that they're weak in an area, uh, teaching as if they're not. And I have areas where I am weaker than others and I have areas where I'm stronger than others. And you guys have both have way more real world practical experience and you guys have more high volume red dot instructing experience. Okay. Um, so you guys both, um, you added, a, you made the book what it was. Um, the, the practical real world stuff is invaluable. Uh, the, the problems that you knew existed and knew answers for because of installing dots over 10 years is, um, is stuff that it would take me another five to seven years to figure out. So, uh, there's, um, yeah, there's a ton of value in that. And I wanted this to be an awesome book that, uh, wouldn't be held back by the areas where I was weak. So, uh, you guys way more than uh, made up for for the areas where I was weak. And that's kind of what I was curious on was just like like why us. So that that answers it. What what are a few of the highlights in the in the book in your approach to pistol mounted optics that folks need to hear need to be aware of? Yeah. Um, so one of the concepts that we cover in the book that is uh, it's kind of a mind bitter but it's it's really important to understand uh especially well there's there's two groups of people that need to understand it one is people who don't deal with it and don't think it exists and the other is people who do deal with it and it's uh the the concept of the ego center and uh the ego center is something that's been written about since the uh, 17 or 1800s and it's the idea of uh, where, if I'm aiming at something, where does my brain think the, the origin of aiming is coming from? Okay. And for a lot of people, it's the center of the head. I'm going to aim, uh, stuff's going to happen from the center of the head. And for most that's, things, that's fine. That's from the center of your head out, not yes. where you're trying to deliver the projectile. It's, yeah, if I'm aiming from here out. Yeah, the angle, okay. if think about what angle I'm aiming at, it's um, coming from the, the middle of my head. Well, for shooting a pistol, the ego center needs to be your dominant eye. Because if, it, if conceptually, if I want to present 
the firearm so that the dot automatically comes up between my dominant eye and the target, uh, my brain needs to know that that is the ego center. And that's where, that's the origin of aiming that I need to use. Not here, not here, not here, um, not the middle of my head, but my dominant eye. And there's um, relatively straightforward ways that we can do that. But the reason that it's important is if I happen to line up my optic with the, the bridge of my nose, it's very, very likely that I won't be able to see the dot with my dominant eye. And unless I know uh, that what I need to do is move it over like this, I'm going to constantly be frustrated. And what I'll see sometimes is that people's normal presentation is up and over, up and over, up and over. And they figured out that they have to adjust every presentation, but not how to get the presentation to go right between their dominant eye and the target. Or it corrects over the course of 30 or 60 minutes of shooting, but every time they start cold, they, um, they're starting over again. And so uh, one of the things we cover in the book is drills that people can do to um, basically stabilize that. And um, that way, if they do get into a situation where they don't have time to warm up before they shoot, the dot's going to come up between their dominant eye and the target. Now, that was the Brock string you just showed, right? The yeah. The yep. vision for instructor's class. Yeah, this is a retractable version that um, that I made. The Brock string's awesome tool. It was uh, created by a, an eye doctor about 100 years ago, and it's, in its simplest form, it's beads on a string. And it makes a huge, huge difference for shooting. The problem is it doesn't survive pockets and range bags real well. And I've spent 10 minutes when I'm working with a, a group and have five or six of them to unknot before we can use them. Sometimes it can be a 15 minute process. And so I, I came up with the retractable version so that it's instant. And it works. I have mine. It works. Um, okay. So aside from the ego center and, and getting, getting it in front of the dominant eye, um, any other highlights? I've got one I want to touch on, but I wanted to see if you had another highlight that you wanted to put out there. Yeah. The, uh, so one of the, the sequences with breathing also involves uh, something called palming the eyes. And so if you um, close your eyes and then put the palms of your hands over them so that you can't see any light and then do the breathing drill, the long exhale and hold with empty lungs that has had just phenomenal results with people with uh, with flinch with visual acuity so a uh, very practical application is people who can't read their their phone being able to read their phone okay. um, with long range precision i had an instructor who used uh, that technique with a long range shooting student and he was having problems shooting tighter than 15 inches at a thousand yards. And he did that, didn't change anything else and went to six inches at 1500 yards just because of calming the limbic system and uh, giving the brain more oxygen. So that's had some, some absolutely phenomenal effects uh, with pain. It's um, had one guy who was dealing with migraines for 18 years and he finally has a way that he can turn off or turn down his migraines and uh, stuff like that. It doesn't seem like it fits in with shooting, but when you get a group of 10, 15, 20 people, usually in every class, somebody's dealing with pain of one sort or another. And Awesome, because the, the breathing does carry over into other things like you were talking about. One of the, you posted something recently that had been an area that Freddie Blish and I had kind of been working on and not to the same level as you. And that's occluded optic work has become very popular yes. with pistol mounted optics. Uh, it's, it's not new. It goes back to the bend and aiming concept. It goes back. If you look at the old Armson OEG, the occluded um, eye gun sight that was used um, back in the seventies and eighties. 
but last few years, several years, there's been a lot of push to do the occluded optic work with pistol mounted optics. And we started seeing folks who had issues with this and Freddie Blish, who had been my boss at Aimpoint, uh, we teach together at Gunsight now. Freddie was saying like 10 to 12% of the, the people we were seeing, he was getting this from carving classes. When you block the optic either by closing the lens cap on the front of an Aimpoint um, or taping over the front of the lens on a pistol mounted optic, we're able to shoot a group, but the group would not be where they were aiming. And yeah. for those who are familiar with it, what we're talking about with the occluded optics is you cover the downrange lens, you bring the optic up in the eye line like you would normally, and your dominant eye, me being a left-hander, my dominant eye sees the dot, the reticle with, with whatever's behind it there. My non-dominant eye sees the target. Um, most of the time, if I can go to tar being target focused, whatever it is behind the reticle will start to disappear or fade away. And my brain will take those two images and make them into one kind of like what we see anyway. But there's some folks that it's, it's a wiring glitch that, that doesn't work. It's not that they're a bad person. It's just things are, are wired a little differently. Um, and so you will see them shoot a group, but it will be in some place. You, generally what we see is like off to the left, off to the right. Mm -hmm but still roughly at the same height. So you had posted a photo, interestingly, in several places. And one of my responses was the Mr. Cotter. Ooh, 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 I, I know <laughs> it was your thing. Uh, you want to touch on, on that? Because I think that's one of those things that folks don't necessarily realize. And that the numbers are higher than what we thought they were. Yeah. Uh, so depending on the situation with a pistol, I can be off as much as 18 inches at 15 feet. And I can, I can show you what happens. So if I cover one eye and I'm looking right at the camera, my left eye should be pointed at the camera when I uncover it, but it's not. And I, it'll, um, if I do the other eye, it'll be uh, not as much, but you can still see that it floats off to the side and then jerks back in as soon as uh, both eyes are uncovered. And people can test that themselves. They can look in the mirror and see, all right, is this likely to be an issue for me or not? And if I do uh, lots of, um, of coordinated vision drills, I don't have that problem anymore. If I don't, or if I uh, try to let it go off, I can let it go off. But uh, really easy, just go look in the mirror cover an eye for five or 10 seconds, uncover it and see if your eyes are still pointed at the same spot. Uh, if they are still pointed at the same spot, then bending or occluded aiming is probably gonna work off for you. If your eyes are not pointed at the same spot, then uh, you may wanna look at a different method of other than dot aiming. And so one of the, some of the ways we found for folks that, that have that, and I think that I know the term I had used, and I think I confirmed this with you, was phoria, that if you don't have that phoria issue, or if you do, right, rather than doing the occluded optics, um, we have put words up on targets, like had people read things that were on targets to get you to shift your visual attention from the dot to the target with the dot existing in between as a reference point. Um, took Dave Spaulding's pistol-mounted optics class last summer, um, and what Dave will do is stretch crime scene tape across uh -huh. the targets. And so now there's this whole big strip of crime scene tape running from the far left to the far right hand side of the range. It's, it's on your target. And you're then looking for the letters or the words that's on the crime scene tape that Dave's having you look at and shoot those. Um, one couple of interesting things about that, aside from forcing your visual attention from the dot, the reticle, onto the target where it should be so you get the benefit of it. You can also see what people's offset is, right? Are they paying attention to their offset and how their trigger control is? Because if all of a sudden those rounds start impacting way low, right? They're probably not paying attention to their offset and they're, they're probably having issues with the trigger when you do this. So thanks for covering that, Mike. That was one that I wanted to hit on. Um, what are you looking at for folks short-term with the book? For oh. goals for folks that are reading the book. Oh, so most people, 
the most common feedback that I've gotten is that people who have been struggling switching over to the dot see immediate improvement uh, after reading the the chapter on sensory integration after specifically three and four okay. and uh, it's it's like they read it one day and they're shooting better the next day or they're shooting better the same day it, it is incredibly quick results that people are getting and what are you what are you hoping for long term for folks that that are picking up the book be it online be it the hard copy version yeah so there's uh there's other classes that i that i do that go into this in more depth there's the uh, red dot mastery live course mm -hmm that I'm doing uh, at least quarterly this year. I've done it twice so far this year already and we're in February. Um, and then the vision training for instructors class that I do for instructors where we go into more aspects of how to use vision and how to use balance to increase performance with a firearm and really in all tactical applications. And I think it's, it's not even the tactical stuff. I, there's, there's things there. I wish I would have learned when I was playing sports competitively. Wait, oh my wait. gosh. In, yeah. I youth, right. There, there's some things there that I, that I can't necessarily verbalize, but I wish I would have had that stuff earlier in life. Um, to shift from the mental to the mechanical, what's being done right in designing the optics that are going out there. What, what do you think the, the, the industry needs to keep doing? Uh, I think they need to keep reducing the number of mounting options. <laughs> oh, I would love to see one from the top and one from the side and no more. What could they improve upon? The, one of the big things that... Uh, well, we touched on it in the book is the G forces that optics are exposed to. And uh, I would like to see more manufacturers talk about that. Uh, and because we've got lots of ads on Amazon that say that rugged optics have been tested to a thousand or 1500 G's, but testing of optics shows that they're going to be exposed to 5,000 to 13,000 G's. So 1,000 to 1,500 is not rugged. No. It's like put it, uh, put it on a rail mount on a 22 and you're fine because there's no Gs there. It's not moving. But put it on a moving slide on a defensive caliber pistol and you're just asking for trouble. And then people get turned off with, um, uh, with optics and yeah. That was what led me, that was what had me walk away from dots originally was I had, I had broken so many in a relatively short time frame that weren't designed to be on pistols. They were designed to be sitting on rifles, but we were trying to put the early ones on pistols that I, I had to walk away from them until the reliability got better and it came back to it. Um, not going to ask for endorsements, but do you have a preference or preferences on the optics you use looking at it from like the neuro side? Oh, there's one that I would mention for, um, it, it's a love hate one. And, and we've talked about it and we didn't like it for the same reason. And we liked it for the same reason. And that's the, um, the primary arms, with the the big big circle and the dot it's a ACSS reticle is what they call it yeah yeah vulcan ACSS. yeah this is this is just a dot okay yeah there you got the circle and the dot came in yep yeah so it's a gls r glx rs15 and they had a model that they made with Holosun, and this is one that they just did on their own. And the, the reason that I like it is I can give this to a brand new shooter who doesn't know what to do with a dot, and they can intuitively see the half circle or quarter circle and move it so that they see the dot. And I purposely don't say anything to people just to see, all right, is this going to work or not? And... 
Uh, so for new shooters, it's awesome. Uh, somebody, as soon as somebody gets past that new shooter stage, uh, this becomes like having a cast on your leg and it's going to keep you from ever sprinting. And the, the reason that happens is with iron sights, we have the ability to just throw the gun out and then find the iron sights relatively easily and then line them up and, and take the shot. And one of the huge advantages of dots is that they reward a good presentation and they kind of force us into learning how to present the, the gun correctly. Uh, in, in a lot of cases, finally. And uh, the, the big circle allows us to get away with a craptastic presentation like we had with irons and not take advantage of the dot. So what I suggest for people is that they start with the circle on and then start doing more and more and more of their training with the circle off until they're doing 100% of their training with the circle off and they carry with the circle on. And where that becomes a, a bigger, much bigger issue is if you're grabbing a pistol off of the ground or off of a surface with your support hand uh, and your grip is not ideal because of both of those factors, the support hand and grabbing off of a surface rather than from a holster, uh, it gives you some grace. It, it lets you get on target quicker without having to think about finding the dot where you can be a little bit, I'm going to use the word sloppier and I don't necessarily yes. mean it that way, but you can be, maybe folks will be happier with less precise with your presentation. Uh, yeah. I found the hollow sun reticle um, while the circle dot reticle to me is too busy and I, I never liked it on the EOTech optics, the empty circle reticle that hollow sun has that option that it gives you for introducing someone to a dot or getting them to, to go away from front sight focus, sight focus. Um, I like that open circle because it's very difficult for folks to focus on. And the bigger the hollow sun circles are, it gets you closer to that primary arms ACSS reticle where you've got that part that if you're off, it tells you which way you're off, where you're at. Yeah. So the teaching, the introducing and teaching it side. I do like those. There's one other place where I, I really like it, and that's in uh, mixed households where you've got one spouse who trains mm -hmm. and is going to be fine with the dot and the other, the other spouse who doesn't train and is going to be slowed down by the dot. Okay. Okay. Um, something you just, you just mentioned, I'm going to, I want to segue to for a second. Backup iron sights. Yes. I like mine as small as I can be. I want them as unobtrusive as I can possibly get them. If the dot's not there, I don't mind having to go hunt for those. But what are, what are your thoughts on co-witness, one-third co-witness, one-fifth co-witness backup irons? I, I like the irons as low as possible. Uh, one of the things that's funny is that there was simultaneously a, a move towards tall, tall, tall sights and big, big, big optics. Right. And like, well, if you just lower your sights, you get a bigger optic. And your, your window, your viewable window becomes bigger. And so, uh, yeah, I want them as small as possible. I, I want to look at them as backup sights, not right. also primary sights. It's, and so it was interesting. I ended up with uh, Doug Holloway setting up a number of my, my pistols and Doug has that shim sight system where he uses the folded piece of sheet metal that's cut like a rear sight that sits very low and then he has a front sight made by Ameriglow that also sits low and so it gives me like I call it a one-fifth co-witness right but versus um, a pistol I've got for review from um, one of the aftermarket custom companies that they're backup iron sights on it are so tall it's very difficult for me to find a holster in my collection that the pistol will go into because those sights sit so high up yeah are you are you running your um your irons in front of or behind your so your optic? a couple of the guns i have the the rear the backup sight on sits to the rear but on all my i'll call them my work guns 
uh, the MMPs that Doug Holloway has cut. I have that shim site sitting in front of the object. Yeah, um, that's my preference also. I have everything up there. So um, is, is there anything I haven't asked you about? Is there, is there something that I've missed that you, that you want to talk about? Oh, well, we could talk all night, but I we, we could, I think, I think we will be like, wait, I don't want to edit four hours of this. Um, yeah, we could do that to Lee. It wouldn't be our job. That's true. It wouldn't be ours. Um, let me go back to this. So we talked about the book, the, when the book was original, when we first got the book originally done and you got it off to Amazon, um, there was electronic copies that were available. And then we got the hard print copies, which, by the way, Amazon did helicopter it to me with the big heavy lift <laughs> this week. We unloaded the pallet of books at the house, I, which I very much appreciate. Um, so if folks go onto Amazon and order the book, they get, they get the hard copy of the book. If mm -hmm. they go to your website, which I, I remember as red.mastery.com. Yes, that's okay. correct. Then they get the hard copy book. They get access to an electronic copy. Is there anything else on that? It's it's less than either the electronic or the the physical on Amazon. Okay, so they can go so, that route and get get both from you. Yeah. Plus, okay. Um, what are your final thoughts? If we've hit everything else and we don't want to don't want to ruin Lee's night. <laughs> um. Yeah, one. I mean, uh, I really see red dots as the future for a lot of people. But one of the big things that I think we need to keep in mind is that they're they're not a perfect solution for everybody, and it, it there's a significant number of people who get angry about red dots because they're very good with irons and don't want to switch, and I don't. They don't need to switch. They don't need to switch. But there's some really, really good applications for red dots for for people who can't see the front sight anymore, for for new shooters. Uh, we've got shooters getting twice as good in the same amount of time. We've got shooters who go through red dot training alongside a class of people going through iron sight training and end up shooting irons better than the students who were taught on irons. And so there are some significant advantages for for several groups, but um, not everyone. So I'm I'm going to hit on some of those things. The final thought may not be the final yeah. thought. Um, <laughs> 2010, I took a pistol class from Pat McNamara. Um, mm -hmm. Pat had retired out of the entity in the U.S. Army known as the Unit. Um, Pat was talking in that class, talked about what now everybody calls soft focus. But at the time, as, as we were both starting to age, Pat was referring to it as close blur, far blur. So put the center of the close blur, your sights, in the center of the far blur, right? What it is you're trying to hit that you're having di difficulty being able to see, right? And that was my introduction to the concept of soft focus. And you touched on this. And that a number of folks, once they get comfortable shooting the dot, when they go back to irons, they can shoot soft, shoot the iron yeah. sights with a soft focus much better. Than they could shoot iron sights previously with a hard focus. Um, so that was one thing you brought up um, folks who seem to dislike dots because they're very comfortable with irons. Right. And there've been a couple of podcasts, I'm not podcasts, but YouTube videos of late um, involving very well-respected individuals in the shooting community. And I, I understand what they're talking about with dots. You still have to practice with them. It's not like putting the dot on your pistol takes away your need to practice, do dry practice to train with them, right? It is no different than the than the irons and that you do have to put the time and work into mastering them, right? And if you're, you're not going to master it, maybe the gun that's in the sock drawer doesn't need to be the one with the red dot on it, right? If you're not going to put the work on acquiring the sight picture, you know, under, under duress, maybe that's not the tool to go to. So just, I did want to bring up those two things, right? I, I don't necessarily think those, the guys that have done those videos of late are completely wrong, 
because there are folks who won't ever put any time and effort into learning how to acquire the dot. And for them, it's not going to be an ideal tool, but for other folks, I think it'll be an improvement, especially those starting out. Yeah. Um, who haven't been exposed to the traditional sites before. Okay. Um, I, I kind of think we've, we've hit on a fair amount of stuff. Mike, I want to thank you for coming on for sh with short notice. Lee reached out to me last night and said he was having issues with his voice. And <laughs> asked me if I would do the podcast. And I said, sure, because I thought he had a guest lined up. But then the next thing I found out was he didn't have a guest lined up. <laughs> so I, I appreciate you being willing on fairly short notice to come on and, and give us your time and give us your thoughts and talk us through the neuro stuff. Uh, talk us through the vision, talk us how you got from, you know, your medical issues, how you found a solution to them and how you've been able to push that out to the community, um, you know, face-to-face, -face, you know, and in written form to help improve everybody and taking the time to put all that material into the book, the red, the book on red dots to, to help get that out as well. And I, and I was honored that you asked me to help out with that process even a little bit. So, well, thank you. No, I, I really appreciated your contributions on it. So I look and, forward to meeting Marcus at whatever point I finally trip across him. So, cause I haven't met him yet. Yeah. But so why don't you tell everybody how to find you? All right. Easiest place is red.mastery.com. Okay. So the books there, the book is also available at amazon.com. Again, Mike, I thank you for your time. Uh, for those of you that are listening, um, I'm Eric Galhaus, so I think that's the, only the second time you have to drink tonight. For those of you that are aware of the uh, Brian Eastridge podcast joke, thank you for your time. Thank you for uh, coming, dropping in to listen to this, and we appreciate it. And hopefully Lee will be back in the near future because you'd rather listen to him and his guests. <laughs> have a good Sunday night now. Mike, thanks again. Thanks a lot. And...